Thank you for finding the Motel Americana podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please consider helping it to continue to run by clicking the support link at motelamericanapodcast.com or by finding us on Patreon. If you're already familiar with the show, you'll know that these stories are based upon the writings of Oscar Garrett, a kid who lived at the Motel Americana in the 80s and who bugged the rooms. The audio surveillance footage that Oscar captured clearly served as the source material for his semi-fictional writings, and those writings serve as the source material for the audio drama that's presented here. A full account of my encounter with Oscar and how I came into possession of his writings and audio footage can be found in episodes one and two. Wherever possible, I have integrated the original surveillance recordings into the narrative. Which is the case here with the knee. Though this is the sixth episode to be released, it was actually the first I produced. It was the first because the text is so faithful to the verbal exchanges Oscar's bugs captured, and so it was the easiest to sort through and assemble in a way that made any sort of narrative sense in the audio format. Which smacks ironic because, given the nature of the story you're about to hear, making sense is just about the last phrase I'd have foreseen using in an introduction to it. Why the knee is the sixth episode to be released instead of the first bears some explanation. At the tender age in the project's development when I first cobbled the knee together, the whole business of transmogrifying a teenager's arguably insane writings into podcast form was still just an idle experiment a pawing at the possum, and when I assessed what I had on my hands in the work and cut, and what it might portend for the rest of the works, I, I grinned. You can't help but grin at the knee, really. Then I shrugged and threw up my hands. I thought, who would put up with a tale such as this? And if the other stories proved to be more of the same, eh, forget it. I nearly hung a tag on the body's toe, knee or no knee. But fate had other plans for Oscar's Frankenstein. Two nights after shoving the monster aside, an old college acquaintance paid me a surprise visit. He happened to be passing through town on his way to pick up his ex-girlfriend's ex-junkie ex-lover from a rehab center in New Mexico as a favor to her. Or so he said, he had a predilection for tall tales, my acquaintance. But on the other hand, he was the kind of guy who would do something strange like that just for the fun of it. For kicks, he'd say the experience. A marvelous and bountiful adventure, he'd call it. An odd and lovely tale to impart upon my progeny. Now, what sort of progeny would sit still to have an account of such a journey imparted upon them? Who knows? But all that notwithstanding, it didn't take long for my old companion and I to reach, as he liked to call it, the maximum intoxication threshold. At which point, I decided to play for him, without explanation, the audio that shall follow herewith. So in my garage, sitting on the yellow plaid fabric weave of a semi-rusted lawn chair, my capricious acquaintance listened to Oscar's tale, utterly impassive. He didn't laugh, not once. Nor did he sigh, roll his eyes, sneer, cringe, or tug gently on his earlobe the way Bogart did when contemplating a complex problem in the old movies. My acquaintance did exactly nothing, and he did it without expression. And when the knee was all over, with his eyes still fixated on an indeterminate point in the unpainted sheetrock ceiling, my acquaintance slowly smiled. He smiled for a minute longer than it takes to run a country marathon, in fact, and he kept on smiling. It was an unnerving smile. The smile of the insane, you might say. 
But more unnerving than the smile was that some minutes later, just like that, and without warning, the smile abruptly disappeared. My acquaintance then cast his full gaze upon me. He rose. He demanded I follow him, which I did, nervously. And outside on the driveway while pacing under a pustule moon, as he'd later describe it, my acquaintance informed me of how important he felt it was that I continue to process Oscar's notebooks. He told me that under no circumstances was I to stop transposing the contents of the cardboard box until every last drop of Oscar's stories was squeezed out of it. Sure, I told him, no problem. But evidently less than enamored by my gusto, or lack thereof. My acquaintance grabbed me by the shirt and shook me back and forth with great and terrible violence, sending my head flip-flopping all about, and instantly causing an intense wave of nausea to envelop me. When he was through with the shaking, my acquaintance slapped me across the face with his forehand, and then again with the backhand on the return, for good measure. Listen to me, he said. You must do this. You must. It's imperative that you complete what you've begun. You have an absurdist Rimbaud on your hands. I opened my mouth to offer a reply, but he slapped it off my tongue with two quick strikes before it materialized. Don't tell me that Rimbaud is an absurdist, he said. Just tell me you'll finish this. If for no one else, then for the kid who wrote this stuff. He's a young animal, a Van Gogh wandering in his wheat fields with eyes blazing, the mad artist unspoiled by doubt and convention, the wild child that we pray to God still resides somewhere within us all, buried under the scar tissue. Promise me, promise me, goddammit. I nodded with something like gravity, and that was that. We returned to the business of becoming sloshed. When I awoke the next morning, my acquaintance was gone, off to New Mexico, presumably. The hard drive containing my recording of Oscar's story with him. My acquaintance must have formulated a change of plan somewhere along the line of his drunken dreams, but I didn't. I continued to process Oscar's tales, one after another, as you've been hearing if you've been listening to this podcast. Then, some months later, and not too long ago, I got word that a short film based on Oscar's knee story had appeared on the D-Movie Film Festival circuit elbowing for screen time in the remotest corners of the entertainment business. Considering the disposition of my acquaintance, I can only imagine the production of that film. I picture a scene equal parts Hunter S., Desaad and Bosch. My wily friend evidently demanded that his actors deliver their dialogue precisely as it was spoken on Oscar surveillance recordings so that he could later dub the original audio over their poor lip-syncing faces. I shit you not. And as unlikely as such an undertaking may seem, there is, in fact, proof of such an enterprise. Go ahead and search the knee. Search Motel Americana short film. You'll find it. Hell, I'll save you the trouble. I'll post it right here at MotelAmericanaPodcast.com to prove it. You'll see for yourself. Anyway, long story short, I'm happy to say that at long last, the audio my acquaintance absconded with so long ago has come back into my possession once again. The circumstances around how I tracked my thieving acquaintance down and wrestled the recording back out of him. Trust me, it's another story altogether. And one that I may very well tell to you at some point, but... I've strayed much too far from the matter at hand already. So, without further ado, the first of the Motel Americana episodes to be recorded, the sixth to be released, and the thing itself, Oscar Garrett's 
the knee. Farber lived in the motel on and off over the past few years, sometimes for as much as three week stretches at a time, and the kid behind the desk had at some point taken a liking to him. This rendered negotiation of an early check-in unnecessary. Still, Farberware pressed the kid. Look, he said, I don't care if the room isn't ready, technically speaking. A room like the ones you got here, they're never ready, technically speaking. The kid just shrugged his shoulders and told him, Technically speaking, mister, I don't give a shit. The usual? Pleased with himself, Farberware wrapped his knuckles on the surface of the counter and said, Hair of the dog, Lloyd. Hair of the dog. Though he was pretty sure the kid's name was Oscar. The kid, whatever his name, slid Farberware's usual key across the desk and the gold-brown 66 winked at him from the orange plastic key ring upon which it was engraved. Farberware spun the assembly around his middle finger twice, then turned. As he walked out of the lobby, the kid felt duty-bound to inform his client that the room had recently been occupied by a performer traveling with the burlesque act that had just blown in and out of town. That he was some kind of clown. Literally. But Farberware didn't even break stride at this. True, upon entering the room, he wasn't particularly thrilled about the smell the performer had left behind, nor the unmade bed, the moist towel strewn about the bathroom, and what might have been white clown makeup or perhaps cocaine powdered in a thin film over the surface of the desk. But he ignored this tableau of filth and set right to work, lustily and joyfully polishing a set of rare and expensive dominoes he'd procured by nefarious and better left unsaid means some years ago, but had pulled from a storage unit just that morning. He'd gotten about half the set back to near mint condition when the phone rang. Now, about a dozen or so of Farberware's associates knew of his semi-permanent living arrangements at the Motel Americana, and they might have tried in a pinch to track him down there, but the voice on the other end of the line belonged to none of these. It said, Hey, you Lloyd Farberware? Yeah, what's it to you? Were you related to a Louis Ciccarelli? Yeah, he was my uncle. What's it to you? We found your uncle's knee. Picking up and rubbing a 2-6 combination with felt cloth, Farberware paused only briefly before deciding to entertain whatever it was the voice was proffering. That's crazy. We buried my uncle Louis four years ago. Well, we found his knee. Where? In Jersey. Well, where in Jersey? In Patterson. Was it close to the river? What river? Oh, you know, the Patterson River, the one in the William Carlos Williams poem. Oh, you mean Patterson? Yeah, the poem, Patterson. No, it's nowhere close to that river. Well, where was it then? Was it by the old church? What old church? You know, the old church on Main Street. Oh, actually, yes, sort of. You know, there was a great place there that had pepperoni bagels. Right around the corner. You know if that place is still there? Well, sir, actually, we're calling about your Uncle Louis's knee. Oh, yeah. Yep, so, he found his knee. Uh, what do you want me to do? Well, we want you to come down and pick it up. You want me to come pick up my uncle's knee? Can't you just bury it? Uh, not without your permission. Okay. Well, you have my permission. Well, it's not that easy. You have to come down and sign a paper. What do you mean I have to sign a paper? What am I going to do with a freaking knee? I don't have time to come down there and sign a piece of paper for for a knee. 
Hey, was it, uh, was it the kneecap or the whole knee? Well, actually, there's part of the thigh and then there's part of his shin. So why'd you call it a knee? What am I supposed to call it? It's not a leg. You know, you people should come up with better names for these things. You can't call people and tell them you found a knee when you really found half a leg. It's just, it's crazy. Sir, I really don't see that it matters. You don't see that it matters. You don't see that it matters? This is my Uncle Louis we're talking about here. My flesh and blood. In both senses. Yes, sir. I apologize. We found your Uncle Louis's half leg, and we need you to come down to the station, sign a paper, and take it with you. Take it where? It really doesn't matter where you take it. And what do you think I should do with it? Most people would probably bury it. And where would they bury it? Can I bury it in my backyard? No, you can't bury it in your backyard. Why not? Because it's not an official burial site. You can't just bury human beings anywhere you want to. Well, why not? Well, I, I'm not sure. That's really not my department. So you're telling me I've got to come down, pick up my Uncle Louie's leg, and I can't bury it in my backyard. Can I throw it in the garbage? No, you can't throw it in the garbage either. That would be highly illegal. Well, what do you want me to do with it then? I would suggest you bury it in a graveyard. Bury it in a graveyard. What are you talking about? Those plots cost five, six hundred dollars. Sir, I'm just giving you my opinion. Well, do you think that I could get, you know, a discount for half a leg instead of a whole body? I'm not sure. Because uh, I heard once that uh, little people, you know, uh, midgets and such, they get half off for their grave sites. I'm not sure. This is really not my area of expertise. Oh, where's it at now? It's in the freezer. In the freezer. We have to keep the bodies there. I don't think we want to get into this. Well, go right ahead. I'm all ears. Well, we keep the body parts in the freezer, otherwise they're going to smell. Hey, let me ask you something. Do uh, all the body parts smell equally bad, or uh, is there a part known to smell worse? Is there a worse smelling part of the body? I mean... You know, if you removed it from the body and just let it sit around for a while. Well, I suppose that would be the anus or the intestines. Although I would imagine the liver would smell pretty bad, too. And what about the soul? The what? The soul. Sir, I have a hey, number of know, other calls to make today. Do you think he's up there in heaven right now with half a leg? I, I really have to go. Well, actually, I bet, uh, that God makes some pretty good prosthetic body parts. You know, he made a woman from a I rib. really have to go. Uh, what about you? Do you want it? Precisely 10 miles away from the Motel Americana, in the Municipal Department of Recovered Body Parts, the managing director's day just got a little bit better. Making an effort to disguise his mirth, the good doctor, for he certainly was that, said, Me? Yeah, you. Well, actually, yes, I might. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. So, uh, if, if you take it, do I still have to come down and sign for it? Uh, no, no, I can handle the paperwork. All right. Well, let me ask you, uh, why don't you just tell me you want it in the beginning? Uh, I didn't know I wanted it, did I? And you do now? Yes, I suppose I do. Okay. Well, uh, one more thing. What are you going to use it for? Well, I'm not sure. I, I think I would probably... The good doctor hung up the phone. He picked it back up immediately. He spun the rotary dial exactly seven times. He said into the receiver, I got something that may interest you. 
Annoyed by the distraction, Farberware put aside his domino cleaning task so he could clear his head. He showered. He decided to shave. And as he scraped the six-month-old beard from his face, he stared at a man he was beginning to recognize less and less in the mirror. When he began talking, though he was looking at the near-beardless stranger, it was the dominoes he was addressing. He could just make them out on the table behind him in the reflection. We had some good times together, didn't we? Remember that time with the Swede? for a sweet. Can't say it was painful for me. 12, 13 hours. Can't say the time crawled by. Went by in just a blink. It felt like a conductor, a virtuoso. Listen to me taking all the credit. There's something between us. We're in a good team. Don't be modest now. Every artist has a kind of love affair with his instrument, his materials. You ain't gonna drink this, right? Farberware tilted a motel glass with whiskey at the dominoes over his shoulder, then took a gulp. <laughs> well, <sighs> man can't wander the desert for too long. I'm through with the locust and wild honey, my friend. A man has needs, specific needs. Things he needs done and must do. Well, okay, it's time. Got the whole thing lined up. Most people think dominoes is a game of luck, but we know better, don't we, my friend? This is it. The final play. May you find good use and soft fingers. Farberware put on his best suit. His only suit. Meanwhile, the good doctor stood with Farberware's Uncle Louie slowly defrosting, plastic-wrapped, half-leg under his arm in room 60 of the Motel Americana. A mere three rooms, coincidentally, from where Farberware was bidding farewell to his dominoes. In his line of work, the good doctor had heard plenty of stories, of course, but this was the first time he had to deal directly, in any way whatsoever, with operatives on the underground. He just wanted to get it over with, and as quickly as possible. On the other hand, Bruce, the smaller of the two operatives present, liked to take his time. He didn't stop pacing or smoking during the entire exchange, and he instructed the good doctor to... Just put it on the bed. Don't you want to see it? I'm looking at you, that's good enough. You wouldn't even be here if I didn't trust you. Why don't you take some time to think about that real slow? Frightens men, don't it? Bruce set his eyes upon the good doctor, 
Whether the glimmer of madness the good doctor saw in them was artificially constructed for effect, or if it was a genuine article was irrelevant. Either way, it caused beads of sweat to spill from the pores across the good doctor's forehead. Bruce chortled, then told Lenny, the bald behemoth in repose on the bed, to Lenny, take the goods and put them in the tub. Lenny set aside the book he'd been reading, rose from the bed, and relieved the good doctor of his burden. The good doctor gulped and asked Bruce, Do you have the money? Do I have the money? Do you have to ask? Bruce slapped a small purple case onto the table. The good doctor approached it, popped open the class, and began thumbing through the bills inside. You're going to count the money? He's going to fucking count the money? I didn't examine the knee and you're going to count the money? We're doing a really rather large transaction here. In my line of work, meticulousness is a sign of a job well done. In my line of work, we follow a little thing called the golden rule. Perhaps you've uh, heard of it. You sell me a bad knee, I break your good one. With all due respect, that seems like a real waste of resources. I mean, if you took some proactive action, you might not have to take the time to look for me and break my kneecap. Additionally, if you took the precautionary measures, you might prevent violence, retaliation, police records, gangland slaying. I hope you don't mind me saying so. But you would also avoid the perpetuation of some rather maudlin cliches. Lenny, who just returned from the bathroom, retook his position on the bed and opened his book to where he'd left off. The good doctor glanced over and recognized the title. Something by Joyce that had prompted him to drop advanced English lit his sophomore year, but refrained from commenting. Lenny said, Perhaps that's the point. If you take away the violence, the mayhem, you eliminate drama, which is the lifeblood of myth. And as you know, gangsterism is predicated upon myth. Look at somebody like Legs Diamonds, the Catskill Rum Runner, for example. At one point in his fabled career, when he was trying to make a name for himself, he hired his own press agent. The good doctor, having finished counting the money, Snap shut the case and said, Have it your way. I'm leaving. And he fled from the room with the money as quickly as he could. You know, Lenny, you didn't have to explain anything to that prick. He finds the body parts, but I drive the market. He digs up the bodies that I bury. You ever hear that expression, uh, those who can't teach? Yeah, sure. That's what I'm talking about. How much did we pay for that knee anyway, boss? Big time money. We paid big time money. You know why? Because we're big time. That's right. We, we make things happen. We, uh, we grease the palm that spins the wheel. Hell, we are the wheel. He blew a ring of smoke into the room and said, Now bring me my knee. What followed thereafter was an intense, complex, and somewhat convoluted series of exchanges that lit up the phone lines of the black market body parts syndicate. The culmination of which prompted Bruce to punch into the phone a sequence of numbers that caused Farberware's line to ring three rooms down. Bruce said, Farberware, you asshole, we've got your uncle's knee. Ah, Christ. Was he a rather, uh, corpulent man? Corpulent. Yeah, you know, big. Round. Rotund. Yeah, sorta. He was big. Gigantic big or, or just big? He was on the gigantic side. Hey, listen to me, you little son of a bitch. Nobody told me that your uncle was gigantic. He was an Italian from South... Jersey. He was a Sicilian before that. It's not his fault. I barely escaped the same fate, but luckily my mother was German. A German Sicilian, huh? And Dutch. Farber wears Dutch. Your uncle couldn't have been from northern Italy or middle Italy where the diets are a little more reasonable. 
fucking Sicilians, they gotta have meat with, with every meal, cheese and butter, fucking fry everything. I bet you he ate like a pig. So prasada, scongeli, breaded clams, meat pies, capicola. I couldn't help it. His wife was an excellent cook. Yeah, but she used to cook bacon in the morning and then used the bacon fat to cook burgers for lunch. Just admit it. Just fucking Look, say it. sir. Admit that his wife used to use the bacon fat and hamburger grease to cook sausages for dinner. I really don't see how this concerns me. Who exactly am I talking to? You don't see how this concerns you? We're talking about your Uncle Louie here, your flesh and blood. I mean, don't you have any, don't you have any respect for family, tradition, democracy? Not really. But I do what I can. I attended the funeral, carried the casket. My shoulder was sore for a goddamn week after. If you don't tell me who you are, this phone call is over. My name is Bruce, and that's all you need to know. You need to stay focused on what's important here. Now, you said you're, you buried your uncle, but he's back. And I'm holding you personally responsible for the fact that the fucking knee I'm looking at looks more like a ham hock than a knee. I thought it was half a leg. It, it looks like a fucking ham hock. I... I don't think that works. You don't think it works? As an analogy, a, a hawk is closer to the foot. We're talking about the thing itself. thing itself. The thing itself has a little bit of thigh meat and shin attached to it. But technically speaking, yes, it looks like half a leg. That's what I thought. Do me a favor. Don't think. Listen. What the fuck am I supposed to do with this thing? Maybe eight, nine years ago I could have done something. But it could have been passable. But Atkins changed everything. Atkins, that's the uh, guy who slipped on the ice and died, right? You son of a bitch and bastard crap lord motherfucker. Lenny, he's talking shit about the doctor. Dr. Atkins revolutionized the dietary habits of the country. He changed the national waist size. Hey, did you guys ever realize your names are Lenny Bruce? Fucking comedian. You listen and you listen closely. I'm holding you personally responsible for the fact that I bought a bad knee. Now you're gonna fucking set things straight, Junior. Junior? Bruce. Junior. Lenny! I'm gonna fucking reach you the phone and strangle this guy. I'm gonna eat my own fist. I just told my partner that I'm gonna eat my own fist. You know what that means? It's, it's, it's Italian gesture, you probably understand it. It means I'm fucking angry. You're gonna come down here, you're gonna pick up this knee, and you're gonna give me my goddamn money. Hold on there, Lenny Bruce. You want me to come down there, wherever there is, and buy my uncle's knee from you? You're not gonna come down here and buy it. You're gonna pick it up and you're gonna give me my money. I don't care what the fuck you do with it afterwards. Let me ask you how much dough we're talking about. Ten grand. You're fucking crazy. There's another option here, Junior, and you're not gonna like it. You have a responsibility here, and I suggest that you live up to it and take care of it in a timely fashion. Where am I gonna get ten grand? It's not my problem. Well, technically it is, because if I don't give you the money, then you won't have the money, and then you'll be stuck with the knee and have to come up with another solution. I've already mentioned that in a threatening and menacing way. Don't make me do it again. Don't make me fucking bite my own hand. I still don't understand why you're calling me about this. We can't choose our own families, Junior. The ones that come before us, the ones that come from us. The sins of the father, they live on in the son. Yeah, but this guy was my uncle, not my father. Yeah, well, all streams are rivers, but they all flow back to the same fucking ocean. You do realize that everything you've said to me today is based on faulty logic and analogies? Alright, I want you to listen carefully. Put your ear up to the phone. This, of course, puzzled Farberware, since his ear, by the nature of phone conversations, was already to the phone. Bruce held his end of the line to the bundled body part on the table and nodded at Lenny, who, in turn, punched the knee hard. There's more where that came from. Did you just punch the knee? No, but my goon did, and he could do it again. We'll be in touch, Junior. You better call your accountant. Farberware took out a cigarette, 
looked over his sparkling dominoes, then fell onto the bed. He didn't wake until sometime later, when the phone rang again. Now, excuse the interruption, but a brief footnote is in order here. In contrast to the previous exchanges between Farberware and the Good Doctor and Lenny Bruce respectively, I was unable to find any audio recording of the other side of the conversation Farberware is about to have with his mother. Nor did Oscar feel it necessary to fabricate Farberware's mother's side of the dialogue for the sake of aesthetic consistency. Maybe there's a simple answer. A technical malfunction in their surveillance equipment, coupled with Oscar's discipline and will to keep in strict adherence to the modus operandi he'd initially set out for himself in regard to this particular story, the parameters of which mandated that he refrain from literary embellishment wherever possible. Or perhaps Oscar just grew lazy. Regardless of the whys and wherefores, the official text of the following conversation reflects only Farberware's half of the conversation. Farberware's eyes opened slowly, then suddenly acutely aware that he had fallen asleep, he bolted upright. What time is it? Mom? No. Sorry, I... I'm supposed to meet someone. I fell asleep. What? No, slow down. You gotta be kidding me. This is a joke, right? Well, how much are we talking about? You know, this is a third fucking call... To be honest, I really can't deal with this today. I had a plan. No, Mom, it's not like the other plans. This is going to be a better life. This is going to be tequila and, and sunsets and perfect hands. Mom, well, can't Dad cover it? Yeah, well, that figures. Yeah, I know Louis was your brother. You think I don't fucking know he was your brother? I've been explaining that all goddamn day. No, I don't have time to explain right now. Yes. I remember. Yeah, I remember. I know he meant the world to you. Mom. Mom, why do you keep calling me Lloyd? Mom. Mom! Moments later, Farberware carried the dominoes through the corridor of the recently added premier suite wing of the motel and, with no small measure of trepidation, he knocked on the door of room 106. A voice from within told him, Come in. Farberware entered into a near pitch black room to meet his connection, a man known to everyone simply as Man Man. Man Man sat in the corner near the window smoking a cigarillo and from what Farberware could make out by the dim neon making its way through the drapery, Man-Man was wearing some sort of Shakespearean garb, replete with a rough and embroidered epaulets. Man-Man clicked on a high-powered flashlight and shined it directly into Farberware's face, a tactic that he employed throughout the entire conversation, keeping Farberware perpetually off balance, blinding him alternately with darkness and light. The hell, man, that light's blinding me. And this is the way that things are. Farberware. Get used to it. A quick flash in the eye. And then... Darkness. 
What made you change your mind? I thought you would attempt to flee. Like your father. Leave that asshole out of this. No. You see, he's very much in this. He guides your every move. What do you think you're doing in this motel? People just don't randomly end up in a place like this. One day, one day you'll see that. Save the Freudian bullshit, man-man. This money's not going to help anyone except maybe my mother. <laughs> yum, yum. What did you say? I said yum, yum. Yum, yum? Yes. That woman is a sweet piece of huckleberry pie. Huckleberry pie? Mm-hmm. With a little coffee and cream. I don't understand. A snifter of brandy and a newspaper. Are you licking your fingers, man-man? Indeed. And that's disgusting. And what makes you think you can just... What? Man-man flicked on the lamplight and stood before Farberware, a man in full. Puffy pants, black knee boots, and a cape completed the ensemble. And I can dress like this. Speak like this. Live like this. Farberware, you buffoon. You know that I'm fabulously well-to-do, which justifies me a certain amount of joie de vivre. Unavailable to most men. My stature, along with my fanciful predilections, I presume, is why you're here. I'm here to sell you my dominoes. You wanted them, now you can have them. Ten thousand dollars, that's my price. Ten. Six. And ten. They're two awfully different numerals. What's happened? Stock market crash in Asia. It's ten. No reason. That's it. You drive. A very hard bargain. A bit too hard, I'd say. A ferocious growl came from within the bathroom, causing Farberware to jolt violently. Fucking tiger. Tiger, tiger. Burning bright. In the forests of the night. Seriously? Seriously, yes. It's just a little thing. But I swear I've taught it to empathize with me. My joy. My pain. When I'm being cheated. Now you wouldn't cheat me, would you? Not after we've been through so much. Here. He seems hungry. Look. Man, man, I know all about what you can do. I know what you did to my father, but you're a powerful man. I, I Beads. Tiger. No. No. Go on. You see, negotiations take time. This was just the beginning. I thought, you know, I thought we might even, we might even do. 
Man-Man pulled two swords from beside the chair he was sitting in and tossed one of them in Farberware's direction. It landed on the bed. Until we get a bit of blood on our cuffs. Do you know? I think you would look much better with an eye match. Farberware picked it up, but Man-Man thought better of it. He said, No. This will never do. I have something else for you. Look, man-man, my mother's in trouble. I want you to wear this helmet. Man-man threw a fencing helmet at Farberware. Put it on. No, the money isn't for me anymore. Put the helmet on. Farberware obeyed. All he saw now was black. It was going to be my ticket to, I don't know, a better life. I just came here to sell you the dominoes and go away, far away, but I got a, I got a call, like the fifth fucking call of the day. And it was my mom. She just kept saying, make things right, Lloyd. Make things right. She hasn't called me Lloyd since I was a little kid. Something's wrong. For once, you want to do something right. This is priceless. The prodigal son returns. Show me the fucking dominoes. Farberware placed the case on the table and opened it. Here they are. Priceless. I suggest you stop talking. You see, you named your price, which means they're no longer priceless. Tooth or bone? Both. And the species, I assume, is extinct. Few animals survived the zoo fire, but the species in no shape to survive. You know, it would have been better for you if you lied to me. I'm in no position to do anything but be honest. I can't trust someone that I can trust. So lie to me. Make it interesting. Tickle my fancy. Nudge it. Go on. They're all male. Does that do the trick? The scientists. Cannot forget the scientists. They work for the pigs that I cannot pay off. Do you know? I can make a horse fornicate with a sparrow, and the fruitcake will come out. The dominoes, they're bonded, I presume. Premium platinum base. Tell me the story. Right here. Notarized. Farberware produced a small booklet from his breast pocket. He tossed it to Man-Man, who snapped it out of the air. Raymond Chandler's very own hand. Six of the dominoes have bite marks in the corners from when he was pondering a complicated move. Dated. In gold. They go back a long way. Chandler's just the tip of the iceberg. He got him from a guy who traded Poe for him, uh case of absinthe, I think. Right. 
team now. I'm famished. I don't suppose you'd include breakfast. Not on your life. <laughs> Batman sent the room plunging into darkness once again. Having unloaded the dominoes, Farber had but one transaction left to do that day. He knocked on 60, but he didn't wait for an invitation. He walked right in. Bruce looked up from a hand of cards and said, Ah, Chicarelli. Welcome. It's Farberware, thanks. Go fish, motherfucker. Chicarelli was my uncle. Ah, yeah, Louis Chicarelli, fast Sicilian bastard. Nice bag you got there. It's gonna make me happy? I would guess. Lenny, then me. Junior? The money. Farberware handed the case over to Bruce, amused at the thing itself Lenny had placed on the table. So, that's my uncle's knee. Wow. I used to sit on that thing when I was a little kid. I just remembered we used to play a game called Pony. Creeping me out, Junior. Save the nostalgia for the grandkids. Think I got all day here? There's no reason to be rude. Way I see it, I'm doing you guys a pretty big favor here. Favor? If anyone's doing anyone a favor, it's me. Doing you. It's all semantics. I'm tired of all the semantics. It's been semantics all day long. really don't see how you can escape. Even silence has some kind of rhetorical effect. You can't help but contribute to some kind of meaning-making activity. Meaning? Semantics? Listen to you two smart guys. Listen, Chicarelli, you better knock it off with the patronizing routine. This is more than what you say it is. No, I think it's exactly what I say it is. You're the one who's been sloppy with the language. You and Man Man and everyone else. I've been living inside of everyone else's linguistic inaccuracies, and I'm tired of- You know what? Deal is off. Fuck this. I'm not working with a guy like you. Guy like what? No, no, no. You're a little mookie for my taste. I work with a lot of different guys. We do a lot of business with whites, blacks, Puerto Ricans. I'll even work with Canadians. But I don't work with mookie. 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 What is that? Mookie. Boss, that's not really an insult. It might even be more of a compliment. Makes me think of Mookie Wilson, who was an excellent outfielder. Played for the Mets in the 80s. 300 ribbies, some 400 stolen bases. Fan favorite. I learned it from Scorsese's Mean Streets. Oh, you meant to call me a mook. Well, that's entirely different. Lenny's right. The word totally loses all impact when you use it in its adjective form. Too close of a correlation with... Mookie Wilson, which is important, if for no other reason than the fact that trivia buffs revere him, he is the answer to their number one go-to question. What question? Who hit the grounder between Bill Buckner's legs? How the fuck should I know? Mookie Wilson. He's right, boss. So let me get this straight. You meant to call me a mook, not a mookie. I guess. And he must have been asking for this. What? The Thurman Munson. At which point, Farberware punched Bruce in the face. Farberware grabbed the knee from the table and attempted to flee, but Lenny had beaten him to the door. Farberware was forced to retreat back into the room and jump onto the bed in order to avoid Bruce. Swinging his uncle's knee wildly about the room, he kept the black marketers at bay for some time before ultimately being tripped up. Then, as a last resort, weaponizing the knee, he caught Bruce under the chin, knocking him cold. When Lenny bent over his boss's prone form, Farberware whacked the behemoth in the back of the neck. Farberware fled from the motel for his mother's house, the money in one hand, his uncle's half leg in the other. Mom, there's been a mistake. Meet me in Lodi. I got the knee. I got the knee. 
Hey, thanks for listening, folks. If you're enjoying listening to this podcast half as much as I'm enjoying making it, then please consider supporting it by going to motelamericanapodcast.com and clicking support, or by searching for Motel Americana Podcast on Patreon. The process will take less than two minutes. And of course, you can donate however much or little you're comfortable with, and every little bit helps. I can assure you that every cent that's donated goes directly to improving the quality of the show for you, the listener. It will help get the resources needed to improve the audio quality, expands the show's infrastructure and reach, as well as allow me to integrate Oscar's original audio surveillance recordings into the stories here. All said and done, it'll ensure that this podcast keeps running, and it'll make for a better audio experience for you, the listener, which is really what this is all about. So please, again, click the support button at motelamericanapodcast.com or search for the show on Patreon. Thanks for listening and for spending some time with me in the vast wilds of the Motel Americana.